Jeremiah 32, and we're beginning to read, first of all, from verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Our second reading is in the same chapter, verse 26. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city on the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Father, thank you for the sweetness, the gentleness, and the soothing of your Holy Spirit in our midst this morning. Lord, you're mighty in every way you decide to manifest. You're as mighty in your gentleness as you are in your great power of the renting of rocks the quaking of the mountain. Now we ask you, Father, that you would settle our hearts and speak to us, encourage your people, challenge us, stretch ourselves, O God, that we may be open to thy word, to what God would say to us this morning. Glorify your name. Glorify your own beautiful Son, for it's in his name we ask it, the name of Jesus. Amen. Three things God cannot do. Three things God cannot do. Verse 17, look what it says. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Then in verse 27, God replies, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The term here, too hard, the word for it is pelah. And in its context here, it means to be beyond one's own power or to be beyond one's capabilities. So Jeremiah is praying to Yahweh, to Jehovah God, and he's saying, Lord, you have stretched the heavens. Your great power, you've outstretched your arm, you've made all things. The magnitude of our God is so vast, we cannot understand it. But Lord, we know that there's nothing too hard for you. Jeremiah is saying, Lord, there's nothing beyond your own power. 
He's saying, Lord, there's nothing too difficult for you. He's praying to God, telling God who he is. God knows who he is, but he's realizing, Lord, I have faith in you, that you are bigger than all of my problems. You're bigger than all of my stresses, and you're bigger than all of my fears. You're bigger than all of our circumstances. You are the great God who has made the heavens and the earth. And so Jeremiah is praying to the Lord in a sense of praise and worship to tell the Lord he knows he is the Almighty. He knows that he's sovereign. That means he's in charge of everything. And God is sovereign and in complete control. Now in verse 27, the Lord answers back. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And listen what the Lord says. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God now asks him, even though he's prayed it. You see, sometimes when we pray, we say it, but do we really believe it? We know there's nothing too hard for thee. God replies, do you really know it? Lord, I know there's no difficulty that I face, nor circumstance and situation that comes before me that's too hard for you. You're the God of the heavens and the earth. You've made everything. Your great power, you stretched out your arm and done it all. And so the Lord replies, are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Let the Lord speak to you this morning because we tend to say, Lord, you are, you are, you are. You can do, you can do, you can do. Then after a while, that little seed of doubt comes and the Lord says, are you sure? Have you given up your faith? Have you given up your hope? Have you given up the knowledge that my spirit and word has already placed within you? Are you sure? The Lord declares there is nothing too hard for me yet. Our title is three things God cannot do. In all honesty, I think if it may be fair, I can't be dogmatic on it, but it may be fair that of the three things that we eventually get to, that will not be rushing, but that we eventually get to, the other things that God cannot do spring from these three things. Even though he's sovereign, even though he's in complete control, there's at least three things God cannot do. So Jeremiah prayed, there's nothing beyond your power. There's nothing beyond your capability. And the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. There's nothing beyond my power. There's nothing beyond my capability. But the enemy's coming. The devil's coming. And he's going to take Jerusalem. Wow. Jeremiah is told to go and buy a field in this chapter. And the Lord says to buy a field in a place called Anathoth. And there proclaim unto Judah, or the Jews there, to proclaim to them that they will be taken away captive. Notice that. They will be taken away captive by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his armies will come and will take them away captive. They'll go into captivity in Babylon, and there you'll read of Shadrach, 
and Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. There you'll read of Daniel in the lion's den. There you'll read of Ezekiel by the river Chebar. They're all they're taken away captive. And the Lord says, buy a field at Anathoth and take the very scrolls that it's purchased with, one sealed and one opened, he says, and bury it in a vase or a, a jar in the field. You might say that's a little strange. Why would you do this? Because God says, see where this jar is. I'll bring you back. I'll bring you out of captivity. I'll end the punishment. I will bring you here to worship me again. But Lord, why would we need to go in the first place? Because you haven't learned your lesson from what's happened in the past. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us learn our lesson from what God teaches us from the past. Allison used to say to me, Ken, you know, you're like the children of Israel going round and round that mountain. You're a bit thick. That's the words. It just takes you so long to catch it. But when I do, I lay hold on it. We go through so many things so many times and God wants us to catch it before we go round again. Anathoth, by a field. Declare that God is going to bring you back. Now you imagine that you're going to stand and prophesy God is going to do great things, but first of all, he's going to let you go into captivity. People would chase you out of church. What? You can't prophesy that. But God has said it, and he buys a field at Anathoth. Now, Anathoth is a city in what was known as the, the region area of Benjamin. Remember, the southern kingdom of Israel was Judah, Benjamin, and the Levitical priest tribe. They didn't have an inheritance, i.e., in uh, land, but they were scattered more or less throughout Judah, and they were in the temple. And notice this, in Joshua 21, write it down, read it when you go home, especially verses 18 and 19, this city of Anathoth was given as a, what's known as a priestly city. It was meant to be the place where it was full of the religion of God. And it shows you that when it's even full of religion, that's not what counts. God wasn't looking for their religion. He was looking for truth. He was looking for faith. And we're told, go to Anathoth, Jeremiah, buy a field. Now, Anathoth was three miles, about three miles outside Jerusalem. And I've said that, if you were to get a, a good vantage point in Anathoth, you could look three miles across and see the walls of Jerusalem. That's how close it really was. And Anathoth name means answers to prayer. Answers to prayer. Now, wouldn't you think the city given to priests, according to the book of Joshua, that these this would be an impregnable city. That this would be a place where it would be so enthused and passionate for God that nothing could come against it. Yet, the Lord says, 
the enemy would attack. Here's something to remember. No matter what you step out to do for God, the enemy will attack. No matter what you try to endeavor to do for the glory of God, the enemy will come. But it's whether when the enemy comes, you're in a right place with God, or when the enemy comes, you're in a not-so-right place or a wrong place with God. The enemy, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, would come from the north and start coming south. And as they would come south, the Lord says they would take the city of Jerusalem. Anathoth means answers to prayer. So Jeremiah's in Anathoth, praying from Anathoth for Anathoth. About 100 and maybe 150 years almost earlier, we had the same scenario. And it's in the, the book of Isaiah chapter 10, if you'll turn over. And you might say, what's this got to do with three things God cannot do? Well, it's got everything to do with it. Bear with me. Isaiah chapter 10, please. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the impending doom that's come on Israel. The ten tribes in the north are being taken captive by the Assyrian king. And his name is Sennacherib. Some people pronounce him Sennacherib. Sennacherib, the king, comes from the north and starts taking away over years the northern kingdom of Israel. Now he comes over the border, as it were, into the house of Judah. And he starts to come towards Jerusalem. He says, I'll just go the whole way and take every one of them. But notice this. Anathoth being three miles outside of the city. Notice what it says in chapter 10. Let your eye run down to verse 28. He has come to Aea. He has passed to Migron, to Michmash. He hath fled up his carriages. They are gone over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gebeah of Saul is fled. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard unto Laish. O poor Hanathoth. Notice, O poor Hanathoth. Now, this is about 100 to 150 years previous from our Jeremiah reading. And here this Assyrian king is coming down, and they're actually quoting here what's going on city by city as he approaches and comes down. As the enemy gets closer toward Jerusalem, Aif is on the road to Jerusalem. Mishmash is nine miles northeast of Jerusalem. Ramah, Geba, and Gebeah are roughly around seven miles in area from Jerusalem, and Anathoth is three miles from. So now he's coming on the road, nine miles. He's closer, seven miles. He's getting closer, three miles. He's right outside the gate. He's right outside the gate. And you see, here's the thing about this. He's going to take the city of God's people. He's going to take the city of Jerusalem. 
wonder why he wanted to take the city of Jerusalem because whether President Trump calls it the capital city or not, it was the capital city. (laughs) Here we find that the enemy is encroaching and that's what happens in our lives because the enemy encroaches. Sometimes we don't see them afar off, and sometimes it's happening as it was in the house of Israel. And we look at it and we say, well, it's not at our door. It's not in my house. It's not in my home or my marriage. It's not in my body. It's not in my mind. It's not in, it's not in my children. It's nothing to do with me. And we get on with our life, and we, instead of preparing, seeking God's face for those who are being taken captive, we just tend to hold up on the walls of Jerusalem of our own lives. I think it's time we got a sense of compassion again in the church. A sense of compassion. Where those who are being taken captive, whether it's with something that has been laid on them or broken them, we get compassion in our lives again, in our hearts. It might not affect you directly, but believe me, The enemy encroaches into all of us at some time. He comes on the path in, destroying whom he can on the way. He gets to nine miles outside your city. Oh, he'll turn back now. No, he doesn't. He comes to seven miles outside your city. Then he comes to three miles outside the city. Oh, Piranatha. Oh, Piranatha. He's so close now, he's at the door. And here the idea, oh, Puranathoth, it's, a, it's a, a sign of pity, it said. It's said in pity. And it's the heart of God for them. Is there no one here can turn to seek my faith? Is there no one here to stand in the gap? Or is there no one here to make up the number? Is there no one here to gather together? Is there no one here that will come to... Cry on to me that in spite of all the hassle and all of the terribleness of this that's going on, they'll cry for others because one day it comes to our door. O Piranathoth, it reminds me of Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. The Lord Jesus says, again at Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's pathos. It's it's the heart of Christ. Here now he is, the one who looked at Anathoth through the prophet Christ. Oh, Anathoth. Poor Anathoth. He's now the one in flesh who stands over the city and says, Oh, I'm here. Jerusalem, you're rejecting me again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children, even as a hen doth gather her chickens under her wings? And ye would not, he says. Oh, behold, your house or your temple, that is, your house is left unto you desolate. Rejecting the full counsel of God, brother, Rejecting the full counsel of God's sister is rejecting Christ himself. 
and rejecting Christ is rejecting the whole counsel of God. He is the Word made flesh. Here we see that in Anathoth, there's, uh, the idea is, oh, poor Anathoth. Now, to link up Isaiah 10, I know it's a little bit like a Bible study this, this morning, but go with me to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19, please. And here you'll find this is the same story. But something wonderful happens. Remember now, this is in Isaiah's day, 150 years before Jeremiah is crying in Jeremiah 32 of our reading. 2 Kings 19, this is the exact same time. And that's where I run down to verse 32 just for time's sake. Again, I'd advise you to read the whole chapter. It's a wonderful story. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. This is Sennacherib coming down. This is the enemy encroaching. He shall not come into the city. Notice that. Now God says, he's not coming here. Do you believe that? When God says it, that settles it, we should believe it. He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor, or come before it with shield or cast a bank against it. That is a rampart up that they may run up and into the city walls of Jerusalem. Notice. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now I notice this is what happened in Isaiah 10. This is the story of it. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians and hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. You know what happened when they took the Lord at his word? Hezekiah comes with a, they wrote a, wrote a letter, a note to him, and all the people, don't listen to the God of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly king in Judah, and it says, don't listen to him. Don't listen to what he's telling you. Don't listen to the word of God. Don't listen to the prophet Isaiah, nor Hezekiah the king. Listen, if you listen to him, you're all going to die. They were going to die anyway. The enemy was only joicing with them. And they sent letters in, and Hezekiah comes, and he spreads the letter before the Lord. He says, Lord, you read what they're saying. God knows what they're saying. He says, Lord, would you read that? Read that, Lord. And he worships the Lord in the face of the danger. And the Lord says, they will not come here, for you have worshipped me. The enemy will not come into these walls. He won't shoot an arrow, an arrow, uh, an arrow. he won't fire a bow. He won't even say anything against you inside these walls. He may shout from the outside, but when you trust in me, you're safe. God says, I'll defend. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. I start coming down to Anathoth, just outside Jerusalem. It looks like God isn't going to keep his word here, maybe. You think about this. How many of us think, you know, maybe what if God isn't going to be faithful to his word? The enemy's so close, Lord, and things are starting. I can hear them. They're shouting, you see, into the wall, but they never once set foot inside the city. Not at this time. They never set foot inside the city. Notice this. The Lord says, 
I will defend the city to save it. Verse 35 says that they, the Lord smote 104 score and five, 185,000. Verse 36 says, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. Do you know what happened to the enemy? His own sons killed him when he got home. Listen, brother, listen, sister. See if you stop to, to, to turn and to fight everyone that comes against you. See if you waste your time to stand on the walls and fire your own bow and arrow at them. See if you want to fire your own cannons and do all of that sort of stuff. You're wasting your time. Bring it before God and watch him work in it. Do you know what he does to the devil? He puts him to flight and he causes him to be slain. He falls on his own sword. He falls on his own sword. Notice this. What really happens is Hezekiah spreads the letters before God. God reads them and he worships. Notice what it says here in Isaiah chapter 10. Remember, this is the same story as 2 Kings 19. This is how it happens, brother. This is how it happens, sister. Let's just reverse back a little from where we started reading. Isaiah chapter 10. And let's go to verse 27. This is what the Lord said to them. As the enemy's coming, and it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder. Praise the Lord. And his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The yoke shall be destroyed because, well, you're really strong. No. The yoke shall be destroyed because you've got a real way about you. No. The yoke shall be destroyed because you have more swords and spears and shields. No, they didn't. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. God's saying, if you trust me, I will destroy the yoke that's on you. The Assyrian yoke, the yoke of slavery, the yoke of bondage, the yoke of fear was here. And God says, why are you fearing? But they're getting closer, Lord. Oh, poor Anna thought. They're three miles outside the city. And God says, their yoke shall be taken from you and destroyed because of my anointing. You know what the Lord was saying to the enemy? You ready? It's as simple as this. He says to the encroaching enemy, thus far and no further. Thus far, no further. Now, when I read that, when God gave me that this week, I just stood up from my chair. Thank you, Jesus. That the Lord says to the enemy, Thus far and no further. You've had enough. You've had your way with my children. You've had enough. So now I hear the Lord saying, Thus far and no further. The Lord says that you are to take him at his word and watch him work when you put your faith in him. Thus far 
and no further. Let's all say to the enemy this morning, thus far and no further. Thus far and no further. For thus saith the Lord, thus far and no further. For the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Because of the anointing. Here, the word destroyed is the word kaver. And it gives the idea to bind up as you would a rope, intertwine. And it gives the idea to pledge. The idea would be that if you go and sign a contract and it's binding contract, you can't get out of it. And even if you don't like it, or even if you fall out with the other party, the contract's binding. You can't get out of it. It's the idea of it. And the Lord says, the, the anointing will bind that yoke. The anointing will bind Sennacherib, the enemy. The anointing will take it from you. The anointing will destroy it. But what does he mean that the anointing will do it? The anointing is the word shemen. For example, it was the oil that was taken for the menorah, the seven bronze candlestick in the tabernacle, in the temple. It was the anointing that was poured, oil that was poured upon the head of the high priest of Israel, i.e. Aaron, the Levitical priest tribe. It was a pure oil. It was the oil that was poured over the head of, of, of David. So it was poured over the heads of prophets, priests, and kings. The anointing oil represents the Holy Spirit. Now, when you're a born-again, blood-washed, spirit-filled Christian, do you know what that tells me? That the anointing oil is within you. John tells us that the, the anointing that you have received of him abideth in you. If you're saved, you have a measure of the anointing. I want a greater anointing. I want him to fill me right up, fully overflowing. I want to be able to say, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's the same one. It's the Shemen. And in fact, when you go to uh, Isaiah chapter 5, while we're in the book, notice what the Lord says in verse 1. Now I will sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. The idea of a fruitful hill is the word a hill, a shaman hill, an anointed hill. Do you know what that vineyard was? That vineyard was Israel. Do you know what the fruitful hill was? Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And that's where we get the word Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Shemen for anointing oil. Geth Shemene. And it means God's olive press. Remember Christ was there and he was crushed. And he sweat as it were great drops of blood. He was the original Israelite. He was the pure olive. God crushed his son. In Geth Shemene. We are the recipients of all that he has done. 
the word here for shaman also means it comes from a root word from Messiah. The yoke shall be destroyed because of Messiah. Because of Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ the Greek. Because of Christ. So brothers and sisters, you may think you have veered away off from three things God cannot do. No, I have it. I have given you the introduction. I have given you the introduction. God says in Jeremiah 32, now is there anything too hard for me? In Isaiah's day, God turned back the enemy because of the anointing. In the same place of Anathoth, you didn't learn, so now you'll be overtaken, and so will Jerusalem and go into captivity. Oh, how bad is it when all seems lost, brother? How bad is it when all seems lost, sister, when you feel there's nothing left for you? You're never going to get out. You're never going to escape. How is it when you feel you're so low that God is nowhere to be found? Oh, you feel so dreadful. They're away in captivity and God says, see before you go, put the vase or the jar by the field and bury it because I will bring you back to here to show you there's nothing too hard for me. We'll stop there this morning. We will do one more week. Do you want me to tell you one thing God can't do? The most obvious one, but there's, there's many others. God cannot lie. <laughs> but that's not a weakness, that's a strength. He cannot lie to you. That's why we take him at his word that the enemy will flee at his presence and at his anointing. Amen. The Lord bless his word to us this morning. I trust you have been encouraged and helped this morning in some way and that the Lord has spoken to you to try Build you up in your faith.